Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that we that you would guide us in your truth. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the teacher, uh, God, and, and you can bring these words to life in our lives to help us understand how they apply to our lives, God. And I pray that you would speak to us uh, prophetically. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us powerfully. Uh, God, I pray that we would be able to identify with the different characters in this text. And most importantly, uh, we would be able to see who who you are, uh, how you're always there for us, even when it seems like the whole world is against us, God. So please bless the message tonight. I pray that your word would go forth in power. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you recall, we've been going through 2 Samuel. Where we're at right now is this strife, this issue, uh, this rebellion of Absalom. He's come against his king, against King David, his father, and he's literally taken the throne. He's crowned himself king. But the crown of the kingdom of God's people cannot be taken by man. It can only be given by God. And we're going to see here in a couple chapters that Absalom is going to find this out the hard way. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, we saw that as Absalom deceived his father, deceived many people in taking this throne, as soon as David caught wind of it, he didn't decide to go after his son, He didn't decide to have a civil war in Jerusalem. No, what did he do? He he actually fled. He fled to the wilderness. Now, we can look at this one of two ways. David, he's reacting because he doesn't want to hurt his son, Absalom. He's his son. He's a bad son. He's a rebellious son. But he's still his son, nonetheless. And we can look at the responsibility of man and how David responded to this situation. But more accurately, we should see the sovereignty of God in this. See, it's God that is bringing David back to the wilderness. And that's the title of this teaching. Back to the wilderness. Back to the wilderness. As I mentioned last week, oftentimes, one trip through the wilderness just isn't enough for us. We're, we're hard-headed. We're stubborn. Sometimes we need to go through the wilderness time and time again. Why? Because God's doing something specific, something strategic in the wilderness. Just as we saw in the past, God shaped his man, the man after his own heart. God made his king, not in the palace, but in the wilderness. And that's the point of the wilderness. See, the wilderness, it's a place of testing, but it's also a place of growth. And those two words go together. See, if we want to grow, we must be tested, and we're tested in the wilderness. Scripture talks all about this across the board from Genesis to Revelation. We see these references to how God uses suffering, how he uses trials, how he uses tribulations, how he uses the wilderness. In James chapter 1, Verses 2 to 4, James says it like this. He says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That word perfect in the Greek is the word mature. Bottom line, God tests us in the wilderness to mature us as any good father would, as any good father should. 
He knows what we need. He knows the scenario. He knows the environment. He knows all the things that he needs to bring into our life to get us to the place that he's calling us to get. And what is that? To be transformed into the image of his perfect son, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what God is doing with David once again. It's not like David made it to the throne, so now he's good. David's perfected. We know David is far from perfection. And the reason a lot of these things are happening... All this strife and division in his household is because David is far from perfection. He brought these things upon himself, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But as we see throughout stories in the Bible of the wilderness, we often see in the wilderness attacks from the enemy. And we're going to see just that in this chapter. We're going to see... The enemy attacked David through three specific men. One man's name is Ziba. The other man's name is Shammai. And the other man's name is Ahithophel. And each of these men attacked David in a different way. And we'll look at each of these men's men and how they come against David. And we'll pull something specific as to how it pertains to how the enemy attacks us when we're going through the wilderness. Despite the attacks of the enemy... The brutal conditions that David faces, we see that the enemy isn't in control. These three men aren't in control. David isn't in control. It's God who is in control. And he's going to use David's time in the wilderness for his own glory, God's glory, and also for David's good. Let's look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, it says, When David was a little past the the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? Ziba, if you recall, earlier in 2 Samuel, As the text tells us, he was a servant of Mephibosheth, which was uh, one of the few remaining descendants of Saul. Mephibosheth was uh, Jonathan, David's really good friend, Jonathan, who was the son of Saul. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. So he's Saul's grandson. This is important as we get into the next few verses. But I want to point to something specific. See, David is in the wilderness. And what do we know about the wilderness? There's not usually a lot of provision but God he brings provision to David through this man Ziba this is point number one God still provides in the wilderness God still provides in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 2 in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 7 we see the Israelites and their experience in the wilderness as after God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter two, verse seven, for the Lord, your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing in the wilderness. 
Though we think we may lack something, God says, you lack nothing. I got everything that you need. The Lord provides for us in the wilderness. He provides for us when we're going through hardship, trial, difficult times of various natures. He'll provide the strength that we need to endure. He'll provide the finances that we need to make ends meet. He might not provide everything we want, but he promises to provide everything we need, especially when we're going through those seasons in the wilderness. So a few weeks ago, I don't know how many weeks ago it was, maybe three weeks ago. Um, I was working out with Jaden. Okay. This one Monday morning and, uh, I'm pretty energetic most of the time, and I got to the gym, and I met with Jaden, and I'm like, dude, I'm dragging. I feel terrible. I'm weary. I don't have it in me to complete this workout, so I said, Jaden, we got to cut it short, okay? We did a leg day, and he's like, man, I just I just can't do it, and it was a big day. We had a board meeting. I had a bunch of meetings at the church. There's all this stuff going on. I just came back from vacation, so there's a lot of catching up to do, and I'm driving up the mountain. I'm going, Lord, I don't got it in me. I'm struggling. I'm weary. There's so much stuff going on, so much stuff on my plate, so much stuff going on in the church. And I remember on my way up, I was thinking about how God provided for Elijah when he was in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord brought him that bread and it sustained him for 40 days. And I'm going, God, give me the bread of life so I can just get through today. I'm not talking about 40 days, just through today. And I, I kid you not, as soon as I pulled up and I got into the office, Everything was cool. I was good. I felt great. It's like, yeah, let's go. I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to get through the day. See, God provides provides everything we need when we're going through it, whether we're struggling with weariness or busyness or death or some type of physical affliction. He will provide for our needs. Now, God, he provides for our needs in the wilderness. Why? Because God's objective isn't to just bring us to the wilderness, it's to bring us through the wilderness. He's trying to get us to the other side. It's not like he's just punishing us and putting us in time out and saying, you're going to stay there for the rest of your life. No, 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 no. The, the, the time in the wilderness is to benefit us and he gives us what we need because he wants us to get through that time period. This is exactly what he attempted to do with the Israelites, right? The plan wasn't, let's leave Egypt and chill in the wilderness for 40 years. That wasn't the plan. The plan was, let's get through the wilderness into the promised land. But because the people didn't believe God could provide, they didn't believe God in general, they didn't trust Him, they didn't want a relationship with Him, they wanted to worship pagan idols, they didn't get through the wilderness. But the point is, God, He provides for us in the wilderness because He desires us to get through the wilderness. Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to ask him? Because sometimes we just got to believe that he will provide for us to get through the wilderness. That he's capable to provide everything that we need. The strength in moments of weakness. The, the boldness in moments where we're timid or we're scared. The balance in moments when we're busy. Do you believe him enough to ask? The text continues. 2 Samuel chapter 16. Continuing on in verse 2. It says, So Ziba said, 
The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. David is asking Ziba, where is Mephibosheth? Because Ziba was originally Jonathan's servant, but now he's Mephibosheth's servant. And so we see that Ziba says, hey, he's staying back to back in Jerusalem because he thinks God is going to restore the kingdom to the lineage of Saul. Mephibosheth? What? God took this guy in as one of his own culturally. He should have wiped Mephibosheth out even though he was weak and he wasn't a threat. During that time period, if you had a descendant of the king and you became king, you wiped them out. You made sure they weren't a problem. But David didn't do that. He took him in as one of his own. Now what is he doing in Jerusalem ready to rebel against the king that loved him? Well, the truth of the matter is Ziba is lying. Let me show you. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, in 2 Samuel chapter 19, we'll see after Absalom slain in chapter 18, David comes back to Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel chapter 19 verse 24, it says, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. He's talking about Ziba. For your servant said... I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slaughtered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. So we see that Ziba was lying. <laughs> Mephibosheth loved King David. He, he wasn't trimming his beard. He wasn't showering. He, he was sick with sorrow because his king was gone. And Ziba says, hey, I'm leaving without you. I'm not taking you to the king. Mephibosheth wanted to go with them. See, Ziba, he's attempting to take advantage of a situation. He's manipulating David in the wilderness. This is point number two. The enemy manipulates us in the wilderness. The enemy manipulates us in the wilderness. See, Ziba, he wasn't a dummy. He was a clever man. He knew David couldn't verify his story. Why? Because David can't go back to Jerusalem because there's been a revolt. There's going to be a civil war. Now Absalom is apparently king. So Ziba just took advantage of the situation, and that's exactly what the enemy does. He uses the weakness of our circumstances all in an effort to deceive us, to trick us, to manipulate us. He does it with David. He did it with Jesus, and he'll certainly do it with us. Let's look. It's Luke chapter 4. and Luke chapter 4, if you know the story, Jesus was just anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that he does is he goes into the wilderness to be tested. And as he's being tested, look what happens. 
Just read uh, verse 1. We'll start there. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to get context. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when he had ended, he was hungry. So this isn't the beginning of his fast. This is at the end of 40 days. Okay, so he's at his weakest moment. Look at verse 3. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. He was trying to manipulate Jesus. He was trying to get him to give into his flesh, the lust of his flesh. Even though he was fully God, he was also also fully man. But we know Jesus, though he was tempted, he would never give into temptation. It wouldn't work for Jesus. But sometimes it works for us. Sometimes the enemy is able to manipulate us to make a bad decision in the wilderness, which inevitably will cause more problems. Maybe you've gone through the wilderness before. Maybe you're going through it now. Maybe you're experiencing some type of heartache, some type of heartbreak. Maybe you had a death in the family. Uh, Maybe... Maybe you're in the middle of a divorce. Maybe you're in the middle of a, of a separation. Maybe you're in the middle of something that you can't even talk about with anyone else. Maybe it's a breakout. Maybe a breakup. Maybe it's a, a burn bridge with a friend or a family member. And we go through these times that are so sorrowful, that we're so heartbroken. And the enemy comes and he starts spitting lies in our ear. And he says, yeah, I know you've been sober for so many years, but... This is a pretty tough time. Don't you think you'd feel a little better if you had a drink? Don't, don't you feel, think you'd feel a little better if you just got high? I mean, look what God's putting you through. Don't you think you deserve to give into your flesh? I mean, they committed adultery. Why don't you commit adultery? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? This is what the enemy attempts to do to us. He takes advantage of us when we're in our weakest moments and he tries to manipulate us to make the wilderness worse than it needs to be. He tries to bring us to a place to make regrettable decisions, irreversible decisions. That's exactly what he did with Jesus. That's what Ziba is attempting to do with David and that's certainly what he tries to do with us. But it's not just the enemy at work here. Ziba has to take responsibility for his actions. And we see throughout the Bible and in our personal lives, sometimes people take advantage of us. Sometimes they take advantage, advantage of us when we're in those seasons of weakness, those seasons of trial. See, Ziba, like I mentioned, is manipulating David to try to get something that he wants. You ever have someone take advantage of your generosity, of your kindness, of your love? Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a family member. And then when you find out their real motives, their real intentions, how bad does that hurt? I'm sure most people in this room have experienced some type of betrayal, some type of manipulation. And when you're manipulated, especially when it's somebody that you care about, and David had a relationship with this guy, man, it breaks your heart. But does it break your heart enough to not do it to someone else? See, Ziba, he had ulterior motives 
and why he was providing these things for David. And sometimes we can fall into a place where we help people for what we think we're going to get out of them. Yeah, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, and I'm going to help you so that you help me. But if we're just helping people because we want to receive their help, then it's not helping them, it's manipulation. If we help people with an ulterior motive, whatever that is, then that's not biblically helping someone. That's biblically using someone. The Bible says we're not to be self-seeking. We're literally to put others above ourselves. Ziba didn't do that. That wasn't the type of man he was. He's just trying to take advantage of David. So David responds. In verse 4, So the king said to Ziba, here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. The manipulation worked. Because David wasn't able to verify this story with Mephibosheth, he just gave the property over to Ziba. Now, this is a great deal for Ziba. I'll give David and his men my provisions, but I get a property in place. It's like, yeah, I'll feed you if you give me your house. That's, that's basically what's happening here. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I'll feed you and your guys, but I get, I get the property of Mephibosheth and David, he gives into it. Because he doesn't know. And, and we can't blame David for making this decision. But this was a bad decision. And this, as I mentioned, is what the enemy tries to do with each of us when we go through seasons of the, in the wilderness. He wants us to make bad decisions. And sometimes what seems so right in the wilderness is actually so wrong. Why? Because we're, we're going through seasons of trial and testing and we're not leaning on the Lord for wisdom. What is our initial reaction? It's to give into the flesh. It's to be reactive, not responsive. It's to make quick decisions. It's to make rash decisions. It's to make fleshly, emotional decisions. It's to make decisions based on how we're feeling in the moment and not on what God's word says or what he's telling us in the moment. David, he makes a rash decision. It seems right in the moment, but it's not the right decision. How do we battle against that? Even when we're forced to make spontaneous decisions in the wilderness, we always have to take that time to, to be patient, to pray, to seek the Lord. If you remember in Daniel chapter 2, right? He had a spontaneous decision he needed to make. The people were calling, coming to kill him and all his friends if he couldn't interpret the dream and say what the dream was for Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he do? Hey, I know we got to make a quick decision, but give me a minute. Can I just pray with my friends and I'll get back to you tomorrow? That's exactly what happens. God gave him the vision, he gave him the dream, he gave him the interpretation, he gave it all to him. But David, sorry, Daniel, he took that time, he sought the Lord. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. Now, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So, 
Shammai is a distant relative to King Saul. And this guy, obviously, as we'll see throughout this chapter, he has a lot of built up bitterness. He has a lot of anger. He has a lot of resentment towards David because he believes that David is not the rightful heir to the throne. It's supposed to go from family member to family member. That's what a kingship was. But all of a sudden, David, he's not part of Saul's family, kind of, because he married his daughter, but he's not blood. So he thinks, no, 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 David took the kingdom in a way that was dishonorable. So he starts throwing insults at David. He's cursing at him. He's going to say all these nasty things to him, as we'll uh, pick up here in just a minute But I want to point out to you that David, as he's in the midst of the wilderness, as if that's not bad enough, as if being manipulated and deceived isn't bad enough, now he's being discouraged. This is exactly what the enemy does to us as well. It's point number three. The enemy discourages us in the wilderness. The enemy discourages us in the wilderness. David is going through a lot right now. His son rebelled against him. He lost the kingdom. He's more concerned about his son than the kingdom. But there's a lot of things going wrong. His family, his friends, many of them have rebelled against him. And now this guy, Shammai, is discouraging him. The enemy, when we're going through these seasons where it seems like everything is going every way but our way, he comes in. He takes advantage of the situation. And once again, he starts spitting lies in our ear to discourage us. Really? Look what's happening to you. How could you possibly think that God loves you? God doesn't love you. God hasn't chosen you. God certainly hasn't called you. Who are you? You can't bring good to anyone. You have nothing to offer anyone. The world would be better if you were dead. These are all the lies of the enemy. And he often spits these lies in our ear when we're going through the most difficult times of our life. The enemy excels in discouragement and accusation, specifically false accusation, as we'll look at in just a minute. Why? Because he has a title. He's referred to as the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's an expert in discouragement. He's an expert in bringing accusation. He knows exactly what to say to us to get under our skin. Now, sometimes it's things that come into our mind. Other times it's through people. But he knows just how to get to us. He knows how to ruffle our feathers. The words hurt. And the enemy knows that. Whoever said sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a liar. Okay, that's not true. Words often hurt more than sticks and stones. I've been more hurt with words than literally bones that I've broken. It's true for so many. And the enemy knows this. So, Shammai, not only does he throw discouragement and insults at David, he also literally throws stones. Look, it's verse 6. He says, and he threw stones at David and his men. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, uh, when Paul's talking about the armor of God, 
uh, he talks about the fiery darts of the devil. And, and the devil's got all kinds of fiery darts. Uh, some of them are the things we've already talked about. It Sometimes it's manipulation or deceit or a little dart of lie or a little dart of discouragement. And sometimes those darts are actually physical affliction. Sometimes the enemy brings physical affliction into our life to deter us and keep us from doing what God has called us to do. We see this in several places, one being in Job uh, chapter 2, verse 7. So Job, uh, if you don't know the story, if you do, great, just a fresh reminder, right? He was the most righteous man in the land. There was no one like him. He loved the Lord. He was a great family guy, great father, great husband. This guy was the real deal. But God and Satan, they basically placed this wager. God says, hey, I think no matter what you do with him, do to him within reason, he's still going to worship me. He's still going to recognize me as God. Satan does whatever the Lord will allow him to do. And he wreaks havoc on Job's life. He wipes out his property, his family. And then in Job chapter 2, verse 7, he received boils as if losing his family wasn't enough. Now he has a physical ailment, a physical affliction. See the enemy. Sometimes he throws stones. Sometimes he even causes physical affliction in our lives. Now he can only do what the Lord allows him to do. But sometimes the Lord allows him to do just that. See, the enemy, he's going to do everything he can to keep us in the wilderness and to prevent us from getting to the promised land, prevent us from getting to the other side. And he'll throw whatever fiery darts at us he thinks will work. But a fiery dart, yes, it can slow us down, but it can't stop us. It it, it can't stop us. It can't prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. These fiery darts will not prevent David from answering the calling that God placed on his life. Let's continue. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says... Also Shammai said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. These are very harsh words, right? David's in a low, low place. And here comes this discouragement. And what Shammai is trying to convince David is that this is all from the Lord. Now, in part, this is from the Lord. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we'll get there in a second, but in verses 10 to 11, we see that prophecy that God made through the prophet Nathan, the consequences for David's sin. And everything that's happening here is a part of those consequences. God forgave him of his sin and he didn't take his life, but that didn't mean... That his actions were without consequence. So there is a reality that David brought this stuff upon himself. But not in the way that Shammai is saying it. Shammai is saying all these things are happening because you're a bloodthirsty man. uh, And you took the kingdom from Saul. So all the blood of Saul's household is upon you. God is judging you for what you did to him. But we know David was the most faithful servant to King Saul. Even when Saul was going after him, David didn't take his life. So those, these things are from the Lord, 
They're not from the Lord in the way Shammai is saying. Shammai is trying to convince David that God is against him. And that might be the the worst thing on earth to believe. When we're going through trials and seasons of the wilderness, when everything is coming against us, the enemy would love to convince us that God is against us. It's not just your friends. It's not just your family. It's not just the world. It's not just the people at work. Now God is against me? This is what Shammai is trying to convince David of. But we know for those who are his It's simply not true. In Romans chapter 8 verse 31, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? God is always for His children. Even when we go through these difficult situations, He's still for us. And David, because he has wisdom, because he knows his father, he understands that. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. I shouldn't be laughing about that. But this this is the reality of David's mighty men. They did with this with Saul as well. They're so loyal. They're so faithful. They're always willing to lay down their life for their king. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 10. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. It's interesting how David responds. Because if David was the type of man that Shammai claimed he was, this uh, bloodthirsty uh, guy that just kills people for fun, Shammai would be dead already. But David proves that he's not the person Shammai says that he was in the way that he responds. David understands that this attack, at least in some way, is from the Lord. It's a test that God is using in his life to shape him, to mold him. And he says very logically, like, if my own son is coming after me, like, of course, other people are going to come after me. This guy is a descendant from Saul. If my son hates me, then, of course, this guy who's a descendant of Saul is going to hate me. But David realizes that even with this attack, even with this discouragement, all these fiery darts, all these stones thrown, God is actually using all of this for David's good. And this is point number four. God uses the enemy's attacks for our good. God uses the enemy's attacks for our good. If you've been with us on Sundays, we were going through Acts. Now we're in Galatians. Um, confusing, you guys. Just throwing things, you know, in there, here and there. Uh, no, uh, but as we're going through Acts, we see some central themes. And one of the central themes we see is every time we see a work of God, work of God what do we see? It's followed by an act of the enemy only to later be followed by an act of God. And we see every time the enemy comes against the church, 
God does something, right? What the enemy is using to beat down, God is using to build up. He's using those attacks to grow the church just as God uses those personal attacks on us to grow us. It's often hard to see goodness coming from spiritual warfare, coming from trials, coming from tribulations. But God promises that he'll bring goodness out of everything for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He says that in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. That's a promise from God. We can believe it or not, but it's a simple truth. Now, the other side of that, we might not always see the goodness right away that God's trying to bring into our life from whatever attack may be going on in our lives. And we might not understand it fully until we see him face to face, whether we die and go to be with him or he comes back for us. But he promises, I'll make all things work together for good. Even the worst things you've experienced, even the things you're going on right now. And I know you may not see it, but I promise it. It's going to happen. You can trust this word because you're mine. You're loved by me. I've chosen you and I have a purpose for you. And even the things that are happening to you are for my purposes and for your goodness. See, his promises should shape our perspective. His promises should shape our perspective. It's easy. It would have been easy for David to say, take the guy out or flesh out or whatever the case may be. But he was resting on the promises and character of his father. Will you believe that God will use your trials for your goodness? Do you believe that? Is your perspective shaped by his promises or your circumstances? Because sometimes that can be really difficult. When you look at some of the worst things in the world that people go through, whether it's addiction or adultery or, or death, just name a few, you look at some of that and go, really, God, this you're going to use a death. You're going to use an addiction. You're going to use adultery. You're going to use this, this horrific thing that happened to me. You're going to use that for good. How can you possibly do that? Because he's God. Sadly, in the last, I don't know, long time, but it's specifically the last two years, I can't tell you how many friends that I've had uh, that have OD'd on heroin and died, that, that are dead now. And I look at that and I ask myself, that God, how could you use this for good? And, and we don't know if they were his. And there's context there with Romans chapter 8, verse 28, because he's talking about for those who are his, his kids. But when I look at those things and I, and I ask God, death, suffering, all these different things, how are you using it for your children's good? I'll tell you, I don't know all the answers to that, but I will tell you one thing. When those things happen and I get those horrible, sad calls, I remember one thing, all that I have to lose. And at least that, I know it produces something good in me. Not that that's all the goodness God brings out of situations like that, but sometimes even just seeing a glimpse of goodness in what God is trying to do is enough for us to trust His promises that He's going to bring even more goodness from the trials, from the attacks of the enemy. The text continues. <clears throat> I want to reread that last uh, phrase that David uh, says here in verse 12. 
He says, it may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. David knew that if he did what was right in the present, then God could take care of his future. He knew he still had choices to make, that that it wasn't all over. He could have slain this man for speaking poorly about him, or he could have uh, uh, restrained himself and not had this guy murdered, and that's exactly what he did. Why? Because he still has hope. He still trusts his Lord. He still knows that God's word applies to him, even though everything is coming against him. And he also has hope that God can change the outcome of his circumstances. David knows why these things are happening. He knows that it's not because of what what Shammai said. It's because of what God said through the prophet Nathan. But he hopes that God will relent. See, David had an understanding of God's grace. Even though David's sin brought this upon, David's own sin, he brought this upon himself, he recognized that God is still a gracious God and he can relent at any moment. The text continues, Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. And as David and his men went along the road, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. This is the fifth and final point. The wilderness brings weariness. The wilderness brings weariness. The men are tired. They've gone through a lot. Obviously, the circumstances, the obstacles of being in the wilderness. And then there comes this guy, Shammai, throwing stones at them. Now, when we look at how the wilderness brings weariness, we have to understand that that's one of the primary points of the wilderness is to bring us to a place of weariness. Let me show you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God gives us the main heart why he took the Israelites through the wilderness, why he takes us through the wilderness. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. So he says, I'm giving you commands to set you up for success, to get you through the wilderness. Verse 2, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He tells him why he brought him through the wilderness. Uh, I brought you through the wilderness to test you, to, to humble you, to expose what's in your hearts. And that's exactly what the wilderness does. When we go through the wilderness, when we feel beat up, we feel, feel beat down, we're weary, we're tired. What comes out? The real us. And it often ain't pretty. How do you act when you're tired? When you're, they say, hangry, right? When when you're so hungry that it makes you angry. When all these things are going on in your life. How do you act? Because that's the real you. 
Who comes out in the wilderness? Who comes out in the midst of weariness? Is who we actually are. It's easy to, you know, act like everything's together and, 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 and seem to be filled with happiness and all these things when everything's going good. But what happens when everything's not going good? Who are you then? Because God's bringing that to your attention. He takes you to the wilderness to bring you to that place of weariness to expose what's in your hearts. This is who you really are. And these are the things that need to change. I want you to be able to see this, but without growing weary in the wilderness, you'll never see this. And if you never see it, we'll never address it and we can never grow. God brings us to that place of weariness to humble us, to expose us. And I'm the first one to admit, you don't want to be around me when I'm really tired and I'm hungry, right? But that's the real me coming out. It means things need to change. He's bringing that weariness to bring us to that place of weakness. Why? It's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus said when Paul was able to, to heal all these people, people would touch his garments and they would be healed. But Paul couldn't heal himself from his own infirmity. So he pleaded with the Lord three times that this thing might depart from him. A messenger of Satan came to buffet him. This was rooted in spiritual warfare and God answered him. No, 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 I'm not taking it away. Why? I want you to learn something. My grace is sufficient and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He was bringing Paul to that place of weakness. Not so he would fail, but so that he would find his strength. See, we can't find our strength until we embrace our weakness. And we find our weakness when we're weary in the wilderness. And we learn who's in control. We learn that the Lord can be trusted, but we can't even technically trust ourselves to get us out of the wilderness. It's going to be him who delivers us. He's going to be him who strengthens us. It's going to be him who gives us everything we need to endure. So it says, in the midst of their weariness... They refresh themselves there. See, God will strengthen us and he'll refresh us in the wilderness. He brings us to that place of weariness so that he can strengthen us, so that he can refresh us. The text continues. This last section will be somewhat fast. Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Absalom's chilling in Jerusalem while David is being stretched in the wilderness. Absalom is indulging in the palace. But guess what? Things don't grow in the palace. Things grow in the wilderness. Absalom ain't growing, but David, he's growing substantially. We love our time in the palace, right? We love the times when everything's comfortable. Everything's convenient. Life is just going so great. There's nothing wrong. But guess what? Things don't grow in the palace. They, they grow in the wilderness. We grow in the wilderness. God will give us seasons in the palace, but you better rest assured he's going to bring you back to the wilderness eventually. He'll keep bringing us through those cycles time and time again until he's perfected us. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 16. And so it was when Hushai the archite 
David's friend, came to Absalom, and Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and the men of Israel choose, this his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I, as I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Remember, if you were with us last week, God had, uh, sorry, David had sent Hushai as like a double agent. Hushai wanted to be with David. David says, no, you're more used to me. Uh, back in Jerusalem, uh, I want uh, to use you to get Absalom to take your advice and not Ahithophel. So, Hushai is doing his job. He's not betraying David. And Absalom's like, wait a minute, you're David's friend. And now you're helping me. And, and Hushai sold him on. He's like, hey, I'm serving whoever the king is. Okay, Whoever God puts on the throne, that's who I'm serving. This is going to be the door in for David to be delivered back to Jerusalem. The text continues, 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Ahithophel was a trusted counselor of David. But he was also the grandfather of Bathsheba. Now, there's probably some indication that Ahithophel betrayed David because David humiliated his granddaughter. We don't know the reasons for sure, but we do know Ahithophel is supposed to be one, one of David's really good friends. And he's betraying him. When? When David is going through it. When David's in the wilderness. When David needs his friends the most... He finds out who his friends actually are. And that's so true for us as well. We find out who our true friends are when we're going through the wilderness. And sometimes when we go through the wilderness, there's people that come out of the woodworks that are there for us that we never thought would be there for us. And then there's others that we expected to be there for us. And they're nowhere to be found. It hurts, right? It hurts to be betrayed when we're going through our most difficult times. David is experiencing this in abundance. But we also see that this is prophecy fulfilled. I told you we'd get to it eventually. Uh, let me bring you there real quick. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12. So I want to reread this prophecy that God uh, gave Nathan for David after he committed the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah and the other people that were involved. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his, this son for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel before the son so we see this is being fulfilled here ahithophel whether he knew this prophecy prophecy or not uh we don't actually know but he tells absalom hey uh the 10 concubines that david left behind i want you to sleep with them in a tent but so that all of israel knows who the man of the house is who the king actually is 
See, Ahithophel, he was trying to publicly embarrass David by making him look weak. And this is what the enemy does to us as well. He wants to publicly embarrass us. He wants the world to look at the church and say, they're weak. They're an embarrassment. They're a bunch of hypocrites. We see this all over the news, right? How often do you see uh, a news anchor uh, talk about like awesome things that the church is doing, right? Man, like they went on this uh, mission trip and help all these people in this third world country are doing. There's great things uh, for the community. They're, they're, they're doing awesome stuff for the people around the world. I don't ever see that, but you will see if a pastor falls into sexual immorality or falls into sin, it's the first thing that they'll talk about, right? This is all based on the God of this world and the influences of this world. The God of this world wants to embarrass the church. He wants to expose our weaknesses. Why? Because if he can embarrass the bride, then he can lead more people away from the groom. If he can make people look at the bride and go, dude, they're disgusting. They're hypocrites. I want nothing to do with them. Then they're not going to reach the groom. This is all a tactic of the enemy. Ahithophel is trying to embarrass King David so that people won't follow him. It exposes that he is weak. Absalom has the throne. He has the crown. He has the palace. And now he has David's wives. This is also a cultural thing that we've talked about before as we've been going through First and Second Samuel. Um, kind of mentioned it earlier, uh, but just a, a refresher. Uh, if you took the throne of another king, uh, one of the, the cultural, I wouldn't say obligations, but things that people would do would sleep with the king's wives. That, that solidified it, that, that you were the man now. You took everything that he has, even his family, and often they would kill all of his children, at least the males. So this is what Ahithophel advised Absalom to do. Second Samuel chapter 16, this is where we'll close, verse 23. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. This is helping us understand how valid a counselor Ahithophel was. It's going to be really important for next week. Ahithophel was a guy that you wanted to listen to. His advice was based on the wisdom of God, not that what he told him to do was the right thing to do, but this guy was the real deal when it came to counseling. He was wise, and the enemy is wise. He's crafty. He knows how to get to us. He often comes after us in our moments of weakness, in our moments of weariness, in our moments of discouragement, in our moments of betrayal, in our moments and seasons in the wilderness. But there's good news. The God who loves you is greater than the enemy who despises you. And even if you're going through one of those seasons right now where you just got out of one or you're getting ready to go in one, 
We've got to remember God is for us. If God is the one who brought you into the wilderness, then God is the one that's going to bring you out. And his hope and his heart is to set you up for success and to bring you out of the wilderness. But in order for us to get out of the wilderness, we need to learn what we need to learn in the wilderness. The Israelites, they didn't get it. At least most of them, they didn't understand. That's why they were there for so long. God just wanted them to trust him. He was trying to save them. But they didn't learn the lesson. So they stayed there longer than they needed to. God doesn't want us to stay in the wilderness for an unnecessary period of time. He wants us to stay there for the appropriate time because he wants us to bring, wants to bring us through. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and, and we thank you for uh, this text, God, how you prove to be so faithful to David, even when it seems like the whole world is against David. Um, but a few friends, uh, God, you show up and, and you're orchestrating things behind the scenes that David can't see. You're orchestrating things behind the scenes that we can't see. You're, you're fashioning things and molding things and shaping things to work things out together for good. And we know most importantly, Lord, you're, you're molding and shaping us, God. So I just pray, Lord, as we go through various seasons where there are seasons of blessing and, and seasons of just, the wilderness, everything seems to be going wrong. God, I pray that we would be reminded of who you are, that you're in control, that you're the one that brings us in, and you're the one that will bring us out. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.